Hi everyone, today we're ecstatic to have Brittany Bennett, Director of Strategy at Data for Progress, aka the think tank that brings forth progressive plans like the Green New Deal. Brittany was the Development Manager at New Era Colorado, which catalyzes young people around civic engagement and is a board member of My Data Labs that empowers nonprofits around Denver with data literacy and effective decision making. She holds a Bachelor's of Science in Engineering from Smith College, where she was actively involved in the Engineers for a Sustainable World nonprofit. We actually met Brittany when she was Executive Director of the ESW Conference that centers on propelling young emerging engineers into purposeful careers. When you can't sleep at night cause everything freaking sucks Like all the racism and the sexism The LGBTQ phobiaism And oh my god, it all makes me wanna explode So here's greenhouse losses Your greenhouse losses Here to find a way It's Greenhouse losses, those greenhouse losses trying to save the day. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you've done a lot of incredible things around leveraging problem solving and data science to push for progress. Um, and we'll get to a lot of that really soon, but first, let's go ahead and get to know you a little bit. So how would you define yourself? Yeah, I recently came back from a week-long fellowship in the mountains of North Carolina. And while there, they had us craft these purpose statements, and mine ended up being way longer than everyone else's. But it essentially, I defined myself as being the commitment to securing a safe climate by championing civic engagement, dismantling white supremacy, and empowering problem solvers to build a more sustainable world. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about, about that summit. What, um, what were you there to do? What did you learn? Who was there? Yeah, so the Byron Fellowship is this really incredible transformational leadership retreat. And I wrote my application about burnout. So like you mentioned, I was the executive director of engineers for a sustainable world, which is an incredible organization of almost 2000 young engineers working to build a better world. And I was with this organization for eight years and I was the ED for three. And then all of a sudden, one week, this was my life's passion. And the next week I wanted nothing to do with the organization. And I burnt out in a very fiery and disastrous way. And so I, applied and ran away to the mountains of North Carolina and did all sorts of creative things like drum circles and movement therapy and poetry readings and really centered myself in um, a really great environment. I really like that you brought up something that I think comes up quite a bit in, in an activist community, which is to uh, avoid burnout and to really engage in self-care. Um, and so for you, you know, it sounds like there might be some drum circles involved, but like what advice do you have to people who, who work um, tirelessly to engage in, um, you know, political change and to engage in progressive activism, um, but maybe don't, you know, they might lose sight of, of their own self-care. So how do you um, engage in self-care? What does that look like for you? Exactly. Self-care is critical. And I learned 
the hardest lesson of all, which is that if you don't practice self-care, you will burn out. And for me, the impetus to learn how to take better care of myself came from realizing that I would not be able to have the impact I want to have in the world. I would not be able to turn out those voters or raise the money that I wanted to raise if I you know, couldn't get myself out of bed in the morning. So I actually um, underwent a pretty radical change back in April, April of 2019, and I started waking up earlier, and then I paid my roommate to take me to the rec center down the block, teach me how to work out, and then I actually switched to veganism and have learned to cook all sorts of new exciting meals, and I even had to set a timer on my phone to remind me to eat three times a day, because if I didn't, it would suddenly be 4 p.m. and all I've had is coffee. So for me, self-care is now part of my work. It is just as important as answering my emails or hopping on a meeting. Like I have to eat, I have to work out, I need to take time to read and to meditate and to relax. And then, you know, there's the fun stuff like the 12-step Korean skincare routine and all of that. <laughs> but yeah, um, self-care is one of the most important things that an activist can be doing for themselves. Yeah, that's that's great advice. <laughs> I feel like I definitely have to schedule in my self-care too. But eh, if you're scheduling it in, you're you're making it happen. So I think that's awesome. Oh, it's it's terrible because I actually I live by my Google Calendar and it's color coded <laughs> and my blue calendar events are my habits. And so I literally schedule in my gym time and my reading time my study time like I'll even put my dates on Google Calendar which some people find really weird but um <laughs> it's what works for me ah, I'm glad to I'm glad to see it working you're doing awesome stuff I guess I I want to unpack a little bit because I think it's cool kind of your your transition from you went to school to study engineering and you went to a, an all-women's college to study engineering which is another level of of, of interesting but then you kind of have had this journey of how you leverage your skills and interests of solving problems and you've kind of shifted more towards activism. What was that, what was that journey like? It is such a great story that I wish I could tell in a linear fashion. And it, it begins with, you know, like you said, I spent four years earning my engineering degree I'm at Smith College. It's this incredible radical feminist institution and the engineering program is no different. And while at Smith, I learn a lot about how engineering can be leveraged to benefit humanity. In fact, that's why I switched from physics initially to study engineering. I wanted to be that nerd, be that person that loved math and science and differential equations and all that jazz. And I wanted to do good. And so I take my newly minted engineering degree, hop on a plane, two hours after walking across the graduation stage and begin my life here in Denver, Colorado, where I am a transportation engineer, and quickly realized that that wasn't the right move. Whereas I am deeply passionate about sustainable transportation and bike paths and transit and walkable cities and dense neighborhoods, my job was drawing lines on a computer screen to widen highways. And to give you a sense of how technically rigorous that was, I would draw a straight line on my AutoCAD computer screen, and then I would offset it 12 or 14 feet for the highway, and then on and on until you've built the road. And it's really quite incredible work. So did that for exactly one year before literally 
doing a 180 and taking up a job as a development director for a radical climate organization. I hadn't really done any fundraising prior to that, a little bit through Engineers for Sustainable World, but I essentially got my butt kicked on the job um, learning how to take this organization and build an entire fundraising program from scratch. And I actually got quite good at fundraising and found myself switching from job to job as a professional fundraiser, which is how I wound up at New Era Colorado. And I love raising money because it's one of the most empowering things you can do for an organization. Every movement requires money, whether that's hosting a web page or hiring field organizers or doing phone banks to turn out the vote. But I'm still a nerd at heart, right? Like I still read stats textbooks for fun. I still love to program. And so I did a data science boot camp and through my fundraising jobs was like, hey, I can download your donor database and do some analyses on it. And so now I've crafted this really cool niche for myself where I'm a fundraiser and data analyst and I use those two technical or soft skills to advance progressive politics primarily through democracy, um, which in turn I leverage for like climate causes. So like my passion is climate. So it's, it's been a winding path, but it sort of all came together at the end. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, how, did you struggle with that at all? I feel like like as another person who's more technical and nerdy and data driven, it, it's hard for me to turn on that fundraising, networking, convincing strangers to believe in what you believe in thing. Like, how did you evolve those skills? I definitely had to learn a lot. The hardest part wasn't the skills themselves. It was going from having a stable, salaried engineering job with benefits to working with startup nonprofits who paid me pennies. So couldn't tell you how many times my debit card would get declined in the grocery store when I would try to buy, you know, $10 worth of groceries or struggling to make rent or having to budget if I could you know, like even leave my house that week. And so um, it was a really difficult time for me going from engineering to nonprofit fundraising to being where I am today, where I'm established and have all this wonderful opportunity on my plate because I... Um, took a gigantic risk on my career and in some ways I had to pay for that but in the end it worked out for me. Wonderful. Yeah that's that's such a good point because um, you know I think when we think about the the types of careers that you can take on um, in climate or sustainability fields um, you know there's often times like oh if you like data and like sitting at a computer and crunching numbers there's roles for you. If you like talking to people um, and you know interacting and networking and like public speaking, then there's these roles for you. But there are actually quite a few people that, that like both. And I think that it's really valuable to put yourself in these situations and, and say, maybe I'm not like, I still get really nervous when I speak publicly, like it never stops being like this jittery kind of um, fight or flight feeling. But I think when you're pushing yourself to um, to new horizons, it's it's always a good thing. And, and, you know, in your case, I, I totally get it when you're trying to move into the risky territory of like starting a nonprofit or starting your own business. We've been talking quite a bit with people who are starting their own companies and, and taking that leap, but then like having that hard work pay off in, in different ways. And, and, you know, I think it's always worth it. And if it works out, then great. And if not, then you've learned something new. So I'm glad that you took that risk and, and weren't afraid. and 
and now you're finding yourself in, in a little bit more stable ground within the field that you really want to be in. Exactly. I, I advocate for risk-taking in people's careers, but relative to the amount of support and safety net that they have, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm a wide, able-bodied uh, cis woman, and that affords me a certain set of privileges. And I've actually talked to a dear friend of mine, and we both agree that given the severity of the climate crisis, and for me, given the uh, crisis of Black Lives Matter, um, there, for me, there needs to be a little bit of sacrifice. There needs to be a little bit of risk involved in what I'm doing just because of how terrible things are out there. So in my mind, I need to be putting my body, my mind, my financial resources, my capacity behind these movements just because of how dire things are. Yeah, and, and that's a really great point that not everybody has the privilege to be able to do that. So it's good um, if you're able to do those things, then, then that's great. But uh, it is important to acknowledge that maybe not everybody has, has that capability. So thank you for, for acknowledging that. And pointing out that privilege doesn't mean that it's easy. Because like, like you said, you didn't pay for $10 worth of groceries sometimes. And privilege can come with struggle. And I think people kind of conflate that often where they think, oh, privilege means like my life wasn't hard. It's like, no, like you have struggles. You can, you know, have difficulties in your life. But yeah, I think it's an important point, too. Yeah, you can have um, difficulties and still have privilege. So you were awarded a grant with Data for Progress to help research what the Green New Deal would look like, particularly around the creation of green jobs. So what are you looking at and what are you finding? It is such an interesting project to be working on. So we are exploring what kinds of jobs will the Green New Deal create and who will they go to? What do they look like and where do they live? We have preliminary findings in our research that show that predominantly the jobs created by green infrastructure by, from the green economy will predominantly go, go towards older white men. And so we're breaking down that data, but it illustrates the need to have more racial justice integrated into the Green New Deal policies. Yeah, I think when the Green New Deal came out, uh, some people were like, wait, you're trying to solve like every social issue with like a climate plan. Um, But it's becoming, I think, much more apparent just how interrelated all of that is, because we do have this emerging economy where... Um, I'm not sure where where this is from, but something that showed that like green jobs pay more on average than um, other types of jobs. And so we have an opportunity to um, bring economic progress for all of, you know, the different segments that live in the United States. But some people aren't benefiting from this economy as much as others. And so I think that having that workforce development aspect to it is is really important. And I think maybe at first people weren't able to see the interconnections, but we can all benefit from the green economy. But there are people that have suffered most from climate issues. And these are the very people that should also be able to benefit the most. And there should be a focus on that because that's not what's happening right now. Correct. One of the top jobs created by the Green New Deal would be um, engineers, electrical engineers who are working on solar or wind turbine plants. And as we all know, engineers are predominantly white, male, and older. There are also um, 
secondary and tertiary jobs created by the Green New Deal, such as cashiers and, and electricians and um, retail workers. And you can think of the demographics of those. And so we're exploring these data more closely to see what equity exists within the Green New Deal as it stands today. Mm -hmm. We're also looking at union data. Um, so like you've mentioned, uh, green jobs might pay more. And so I'd be interested to see how many of those jobs are tied to a union or not. Um, but yeah, I agree with um, everything that you just mentioned. So speaking on this, uh, you know, the work that you're doing at Data for Progress, doing some research on this, uh, the Green New Deal and workforce development, um, you know, I went snooping in the website and something that I found really interesting was that there's actually a scorecard for every single presidential candidate, um, or at least the, the main ones. And then like all of the issues that uh, are, are around not just climate change, but sustainability, sustainable development, and it scores each candidate on how they're doing. So we've had a couple of debates. We've had some candidates re release uh, climate plans or some form of climate platform, at least speak on climate change issues. So what are your thoughts on where the presidential candidates are? Um, do you have a, a candidate that you think has really hit the mark? Um, do you feel like it's being talked about enough? Or, you know, what are your overall thoughts on where we are as far as the uh, presidential race and climate? It's such an important question because the next president will decide, essentially, if we get to have a safe climate or not. In the next four years or so are going to be vital towards uh, massively deploying renewables and creating this green economy and passing a Green New Deal. And so it's really important that we get this right. I, there's so much to tackle here. One, I have been in the communities of making sure Jay Inslee stays on the debate stage because his climate plan has not been beat yet. And mm -hmm. he is the sole candidate that understands the overwhelming severity of the climate crisis. And he also understands that essentially every issue can come back to climate. And as an example, immigration is a climate issue. As we see more and more adverse effects from climate change, it's going to drive massive climate refugees um, and immigration into the United States. And if we look at the current state of our immigration, we can run a really terrible thought experiment of where this is going to go, right? So Jay Inslee really is a necessary voice within the primary, and I hope he stays on the debate stage. We could also look at the DNC and their resistance in hosting a climate debate and just the sheer absurdity of them dragging their feet on this. And so props to the Sunrise Movement for really driving that conversation forward in pushing for a debate. You asked very pointedly, are we talking about climate enough within the 2020 primaries? And my answer is, no, no, we cannot <laughs> be talking about it nearly enough. Um, like, the sh like, you could read reports on the estimations of the number of people that are going to die, but even those reports, I don't think, provide an accurate number. Like, this is the biggest crisis of our generation, and the fact that, you know, you get 12, 15 minutes maybe on a debate stage geared towards the climate crisis is insulting and very deeply upsetting. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's bothered me is that because it hasn't gotten any airtime, a lot of candidates will just be like, and climate change is really important. And that's as far <laughs> as they get. They'll just be like, and climate change for sure. And they'll be like, renewable energy. Um, but we're not getting into like the meat of what we mean when we say, you know, just climate policy. We're not getting into what frontline communities look like. Of course, we're not even getting into climate refugees and like any form of intersectionality within the climate movement. Um, but I think that's one of the things that's been most frustrating to me is that like we're not getting past the point of just acknowledging that it's a problem. Sunrise Movement is massively organizing around pushing the DNC themselves to host a climate debate. And so they actually convinced the DNC to hold a vote among its voting members to determine whether they should host a climate debate. I don't know off the top of my head when that vote will occur, but there's a lot of activism within the grassroots climate um, ecosphere to actually um, make sure that that vote passes. Awesome. I guess we'll just have to look out for that and hope that it happens. Yeah, and if you want to chain yourself to the DNC office, I mean, be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since, since we last talked, Brittany, I actually signed up uh, for the Sunrise Movement in my area, in the Bay Area. And I, I attended a few things and <laughs> still like Phoebe, I'm like, oh man, maybe I'll get to like go annoy my legislatures with the, the Sunrise Movement. Because even though California is very democratic, there are some issues with having actual progressive Democrats <laughs> that are in, in control of California, which is kind of interesting. Being in Texas and Louisiana for so long, I always thought of California as super hippy dippy progressive. But even here, we're having difficult conversations on what climate change action actually looks like. So hopefully I can be one of the many people helping <laughs> push for a climate change debate. And I encourage anyone listening to, um, you know, tweet at your legislatures, write to them, um, push for it. The more that we're making the conversation online about the climate change debate and about climate change, the more likely it is people will listen because we have the power and we have the voice. So we just gotta keep speaking up. But <laughs> transitioning that, um, I noticed that in your personal and professional work that you tend to gravitate towards organizations that empower young people in particular, not just young people, but young diverse people from New Era Colorado to Sunrise to ESW. Why do you choose these types of organizations and why is it important to you to have young people driving progress? Young people are badass. I don't know if you've <laughs> noticed, but young people are killing it out there. You know, I'm a millennial, but it's really the, like the younger millennials and the Gen Zers mm -hmm. who they get it. So many boomers, older people, et cetera, look down on the younger folk for, oh, you know, you don't know enough to vote or why are you protesting? You're, you're not smart enough. You're not old enough to have an opinion. And these young people are showing them that that's not true. They get it. And they are out there making change. They haven't asked permission for anyone. They're just out there doing it. When I get asked, what gives me hope? It is young people. I mean, you look at the polls that survey young people and what they believe in, and they're overwhelmingly progressive. You know, they're for a Green New Deal. They're um, for um, healthcare um, regulation and for overhauling our healthcare system. They're for all these like really wonderful things. And so 
my work and what I'm trying to center my work in is getting those young people out to vote because if young people show up, they they will have their the world they want to live in. So that is um, a really cool part of my career that I've uh, discovered. Yeah, I 100% agree. <laughs> I think about that a lot too because even like my parents they'll kind of be like, oh man, young people these days, they have no work ethic. When I was their age, I'd have to do this and this and this. And I'm like, yeah, but when you were my age, you could afford college with a minimum wage job. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) you got a job while you were in college and you worked for that company for 40 years and never got laid off. Like it's a different world and young people are different and they have to live with whatever world we set out for them right now. And it's, seems unfair that the world's literally like falling apart and people are literally dying but yeah i believe control the the conversation yeah correct me if i'm wrong you know postscript but i believe (laughs) one in three eligible voters in the 2020 election will be a millennial yeah i think i think i feel like i've heard something like that yeah they make up majority of the the u.s workforce and they're about to make a majority of the global workforce in the next five years so it's yes yes so turn out vote yeah i think if we because we always rave about the youth here and you know i feel like i'm a millennial but you know there's there's teenagers right now that are just you know grew up with the internet have access to a lot of information and you know, I think one of the biggest issues that we have, and especially in Texas, we're a non-voting state, right? People say like Texas is red. No, Texas is a non-voting state. And um, something that I'm hoping that can change with people that are younger now and that are, you know, not afraid to speak up, that really understand that they have like the power to engage in uh, policy, even if they can't directly vote yet. Um, They know that they can influence uh, some of the decision-making And so I'm really hoping that, you know, the tides can change so that like everybody feels uh, empowered to to not just vote, but to engage in in activism, because, you know, the the idea that our, you know, vote doesn't matter or, you know, the oh, I I don't really like politics or I don't like talking about politics or I'm not political. um, I still hear that a lot, um, you know, with with people from from my hometown and and okay, I mean, I don't, I, sometimes I don't know what's worse. I'm like, is it worse to be completely like apathetic and to not participate? Because by not voting, by not participating, you are um, siding with the oppressor, you know? And so I kind of, I feel like that's a, that's a huge potential there too with, with um, people that are younger is just that voting and engaging in our political process becomes more of um, an everyday thing and much more common than I think it has been for other generations. Um, so that's kind of my, my hope there for, for youth, you know, besides them just being completely unafraid and, and just, I don't know, like, I don't know what word to use besides just like woke and informed uh, much more so than I was. So, you know, I think people worry about video games and people being stuck to their screens. And that, that's one thing, but the amount of information that people have access to, I think can be used for good as well. Brittany, in, in thinking about, you know, your path and in thinking about the the fact that, you know, with this podcast, we're trying to reach out to people who are thinking about being in sustainability. They don't know what that looks like, or maybe they're in a completely different 
field, but they're curious about what engaging in climate activism or sustainability looks like. So what advice do you have to others who are trying to find their place in driving sustainable development? One of the easiest things anyone can do is find their local Sunrise Hub and join. There are many, many, many hubs out there and very likely a hub just a hop, skip, and a jump for where you, from where you live or work. And so by joining a Sunrise Hub, you are in the grassroots fight. I mean, you are the ones protesting, and you're the ones hosting these amazing Green New Deal town halls, and you're the ones calling your legislators and your representatives. Um, it's one of the easiest ways to get involved in climate activism, and it also brings with it a really wonderful and powerful community. And Sunrise isn't the only organization out there. Um, there are tons of organizations like Citizens Climate Lobby and then 350. You can find an organization that speaks to what you believe in. And because of how popular grassroots climate activism has taken off in the last couple of years, there is undoubtedly a community where you live that you can join and find like-minded people to organize with. Yeah, so just just to add a little bit to that, I would also um, want to encourage people to look at politics from all different levels. Like we have our, you know, what we're trying to do at a federal level, pushing the U.S. House of Representatives, what Congress is doing to try to push uh, for, you know, Green New Deal policies. And then we've got state level, right? And, and that's where really we probably see a lot of differences depending on where you live. And then we've got city level politics. And so I encourage people to really research organizations that are local to them, but then also try to read up on on what policies are happening at the city, county, state, and national level, because you'll really be able to understand where the policies that you like are and then what you really need to push for both on a local and and national level. Getting involved in local politics can be um, daunting. But I recommend just finding when your next city council meeting is going to be and showing up and seeing what you learn and make a new friend while you're at it. Yes. I guess. <laughs> I also want to uh, repeat advice that Brittany gave earlier, and that's just slowing down and self-care because I think especially millennials, we're having to work uh, a lot more. <laughs> so a lot of us have multiple jobs and it's hard to slow down. And like really focus on what you value and where you want to be and how you want to contribute to making the world better. So definitely find that time for self-care, not just like sitting and watching Netflix and not really reflecting and opening up your your mind, but really slowing down sometimes. I am working on that right now myself. It's been hard adjusting to like a new job and a new state and a new culture of Silicon Valley, but now that I've kind of started doing it more, I'm realizing like, oh my gosh, if I had done this earlier, I would be so much more happy. So reminding myself and reminding everyone that self-care is super important. So Brittany, what else would you want to see happen as we're enabling effective climate change policies? What a wonderful question. (laughs) So uh, another exercise we did at the retreat and something that I've done in the past is read Danella Meadows' Envisioning a Sustainable World, which encourages activists to envision the world they want to live in. And it can get quite emotional because you have to sort of undo that pessimistic, practical side of you and really think about 
what would a sustainable world look like? And something that I've begun writing into my um, purpose statement and my vision is an economy, a workforce, like a Star Trek brigade of engineers who aren't working on the fossil fuel industry, but are united in like this utopia of doing engineering for social good. And so the part of the Green New Deal that really fascinates me and really is so empowering to me is like this possibility that people who graduate with STEM degrees, who are engineers, who are scientists, who are programmers, instead of taking these abysmal, very corporate, very sterile jobs can enter into a workforce where they're able to leverage their expertise and their love of math and science for for social good, just like I wanted to do when I graduated, but didn't feel like I had um, the opportunity to. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. So in your, I know we've talked about some of the fellowships that you've done, but let's say somebody is just about to graduate with an engineering degree and they don't know where, what, what types of organization or what types of fellowships, like where would you recommend that they look? Do you have a website? I know like Net Impact, for example, is like a, a good place if you're interested in like social impact, sustainability, but do you have any sort of websites or organizations that they can look at for those types of opportunities? There's a great one. My friend Mike Brunel runs dayaway.com, which is probably the largest aggregation of renewable energy engineering jobs out there. And so if you are an engineer and you're looking to get plugged into that community, go to dayaway.com. That's great. I hadn't heard of that. So thank you. Yeah, we'll link to that as well. All right. So any last thoughts, any other projects out of the many that you've got going on that you'd like to um, share with us? Yeah. So I was recently accepted into the Sierra Clubs and the Women's Earth Alliance's U.S. Women Environmental Leaders Grassroots Accelerator, which is the longest title I've ever had to share. <laughs> and it's this incredible four-month program to build up 24 incredible women environmental leaders in the U.S. And I was chosen as one of them. And I applied on my idea of building grassroots climate hackathons. So the idea consists of this fundamental theory that Community organizations, nonprofits, churches, schools, they have institutional knowledge about the challenges their community faces. You know, they know which rivers are polluted, they know the air quality, they mm -hmm. understand their community, but they often lack the resources, the funding, the capacity, the time to actually develop solutions to these problems. On the other hand, you have this bountiful resource of STEM majors, of young engineers, of hackers, of programmers who have these technical skills but often lack a connection to the community. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to create is a place for these two groups to come together and collaborate on solutions that build local climate resilience. Mm -hmm. So I've partnered with the Earth Hacks Foundation, which is a new foundation started by Sanjana Paul. And together, we are working to facilitate grassroots hackathons at college campuses across the United States, across North America. And 
we, in the first pilot year, in the past year, we've developed over 100 solutions to the climate crisis. And what we have gearing up is Capsule, which aims to be the largest climate hackathon in the world. And so we expect to bring 4,000 hackers to the United States in June of 2020 to develop over 500 solutions to the climate crisis. And so if this model works, I'd love to scale it globally and essentially have climate hackathons going on in all these communities across the world and then feed these solutions into an open source database so that anyone anywhere can download a climate solution and replicate it in their own community. That's amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen a lot of these social good hackathons where it's like human-centered design-based ideas and try to solve affordable housing. I think there's been some in, in the Austin area based around that as well. But I think having something centered on climate issues and having it be localized, because yeah, I agree with you that communities know their problems the most. And you can be the smartest engineer in the world and you will still mess it up if you don't understand the issues that affect that particular community. And cultural context. There are so many different things that, that are at play. So I, yeah, I wish you good luck in that. And I, I can't wait to hear about it. Great. Thank you. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you about something really cool that you told us about you, and that's that you have a taco tattoo. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yes. And to be clear, it's not a taco tattoo. It's a taco shell tattoo. So <laughs> not even the meat or the guac or the lettuce and cheese. So when I was a child, um, my mother ran from an abusive marriage. She literally got up in the middle of the night and went to the police. And the next day I went to school and then I just never went home again. And so that began six years of a really long and frustrating struggle with poverty, with safety, with the law and lawyers. And so in the midst of this, when maybe I was 14, along with my twin brother, we were in our apartment and we were looking for dinner. And so my brother and I are rummaging through the cabinets and we're going through the fridge and we're opening up all the pantry doors and we cannot find anything to eat. And we look again and we like, move some boxes around and some like a bottle of ketchup and like a can of this and in the very back of our pantry we pull out this box of taco shells and my brother and I we act as if we had just won the lottery we <laughs> rip open the box and we take out the taco shells and in a moment of gluttony we gorge ourselves on these taco shells without even taking the time to toast them. And even despite being starved and, you know, we probably hadn't had food in a day or so, we made a point to save half the taco shells for another day. And later that night when my mom called us to ask, did you find anything to eat? We were like, yeah, mom, we had taco shells. <laughs> and then my mom breaks down crying because she realizes that she can't feed her children, that her children are eating taco shells for dinner, and that she's a horrible mother. But I actually got this memory tattooed on me. I got two taco shells, one for me, one for my twin brother, 
on my left ankle where my mother has her soul tattoo to remember a time when eating taco shells was the best thing of my day. Whereas now, like, you know, I got to have my coffee. Like, I like sushi delivered to my door. You know, I want to I wanna buy books and stuff. But it's sort of this memory that keeps me grounded of knowing where I came from and just how much I've been through to get to where I am today. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank, thank you for sharing that with everybody. Yeah, I think it's always important to um, think about the struggles that we've had and not run away from them, but to use them to um, strength and to really understand how much of a resilient person you and your family um, are. And so I, yeah, I'm really proud of you all for recovering everything and, and I'm happy that you are where you are. Thank you. It's, um, I, I don't, um, I'm grateful every single day for my safety, first and foremost, to be able to leave my house and not feel afraid and to be able to have an internet presence and not feel afraid and, um, to be able to eat every day. It's, um, it's always a blessing. So we, we always ask one final question because we recognize that tackling the interrated issues behind climate change is not easy and it's important to slow down and remember that you're fighting for something, not against it. So what's something positive or joyful that's happened to you that you've read about or just something joyful that you're currently fighting for? So it may seem incredibly cheesy, but my absolute best friend um, and mentor in life is in the process of adopting a baby. <laughs> and the idea of creating a safe climate, a progressive world, an equitable world for that child has really upped my game. <laughs> so I, yeah, um, for, you know, you can talk about the future generation all you want, but to have a baby, a child into your life, it suddenly becomes much more tangible. So um, fighting for, fighting for a future for that kid. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Leslie, what about you? Uh, yes, it's been a hard one. It's been like, oh, yeah, I, I, I almost saying, didn't it's been a rough one. few weeks, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like always a rough few weeks. But yeah, I think these last few weeks have been particularly difficult. Every time I try to look up something good that's happened, like another awful thing happens and <laughs> it's been rough, but I guess one cool thing that is an end-all solution, but science is about lots of small steps, right? So there is a research team in Australia that kind of found a way to better clean out microplastics from water sources. I think for this podcast, they don't have to convey the awful problem that we currently have in the world of plastic pollution in our oceans and in particular microplastics that are a lot harder to, to clean and to remove from um, from water. And this method has uh, carbon nanotubes that cleaned water samples uh, by half 
it's just a matter of I think eight hours that <laughs> clean the water like a 50% in just eight hours which is really really quick and could have good implications for future cleaning and not just helping better clean water sources and removing microplastics but actually preventing microplastics from entering water sources to begin with which would be very useful hopefully we're reducing our plastic pollution to begin with but it's always good to have preventative measures um, and I think that the reason why that they said that this was more successful as our current methods is that it's nitrogen-coated carbon nanotubes that are mixed with um, peroxim monosulfate, I think. Yes, and then you like you heat the water up a little bit and it speeds up the process and it's able to kind of create reactive oxygen species that degrade microplastics and it's a lot easier to clean up and because these nanotubes have magnesium in them you could actually just use magnets to clean it up after you're done cleaning the water source which makes cleanup easy it's be a little difficult to scale out to clean the oceans but it's just one more step towards how are we going to deal with this huge and insurmountable problem of microplastics in the ocean so that was <laughs> One positive thing that I read about that got me kind of excited. What about what about you, Phoebe? I know it's not been a fun <laughs> few weeks for you. Um, no, that's that's really cool that you gave that overview right there because I had seen like a headline that was just like the biggest cleanup of our oceans, like or the biggest effort to date uh, to clean up our oceans is happening, and I was like, oh, I've got to read that, and then. I never did, so I'm glad that you provided this uh, synopsis, and that that sounds really cool. Um, yeah, I feel like I, I was going to be really cranky and say that I didn't have a joy, because right now, um, you know, I went uh, away for the weekend, and I didn't have uh, internet, and um, then when I finally got internet again, there were not just one, but two mass shootings uh, here in the U.S., and so, you know, one of them was targeted at a Latin American community the other one they're still not quite sure um and so we have a huge problem right now i mean it feels like the same story just heightened and worsened by some of the the rhetoric that that is going on in our national politics but what i wanted to kind of take from that because i was thinking about like what is it that has been making me or keeping me somewhat sane and, and it's the fact that we actually do have some amazing journalists of color that are able to provide perspectives and, and cover these issues from um, in a way that that respects the issue that calls the issue for what it is, which is a white supremacist issue. Because sometimes I just get really frustrated with the way some of our um, and I understand that the the entire purpose of journalism is to be unbiased and to present things in a just straightforward way. But when you have something that's so obviously pushed by a, a certain rhetoric and when there's so much evidence that it was done because of the way that we are talking about politics and the way that we're talking about immigrants and, and all of that and, and just the, the Latino community or the Latinx community. So I don't know. I, I guess I just want to say that I'm, I'm happy that there are people, um, you know, that we've got podcasts like In the Thick or Latino USA or uh, Pod Save the People and and just um, that we, you know, as, as bad as Twitter can be, it can also be a place where people can uh, grieve. And, and I saw this, this thread from um, this uh, journalist uh, that was just texts from people. And, 
it was, I mean, really, really sad because people were talking about how uh, they were scared to be themselves, you know, throughout Texas to be, to have brown skin. But at the same time, there was somebody that was actually putting these, these stories out there and, and, you know, speaking for, for the community. And so I'm just glad that that exists because I know that, you know, that wasn't always the case. And um, I'm just hoping that we can continue to keep diversifying the the journalist community and diversifying uh, media outlets. And, you know, I'm glad that podcasts are, are you know, we've kind of democratized podcasts in that, like, it, it's relatively easy and cheap to to put your voice out there. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that that's just my joy is that, like, I don't have to feel uh, super alone in my thoughts and that I know that I can, you know, listen to or go read a source. And it's not just uh, like, oh, I just want to listen to an echo chamber of my own thoughts. Um, because, you know, I do feel like sometimes like progressive uh, based politics and, and journalism can be like that. But rather, I, I just want to feel sane and, and like not alone. And so for, for me, it's just I'm, I'm just really happy that um, some of the, those voices like Maria Hinojosa, who's like my idol um i'm just glad that they exist and i'm glad that they're being honest and they're just like i'm a journalist i'm not okay i feel sad i know i'm supposed to you know be completely um neutral when it comes to this but i'm not because it hurts and like that's okay so that that'll that's my joy (laughs) that's a beautiful joy things are so messed up but it is incredible that uh the conversation is changing and i am I have always been represented in the media, but I'm getting to hear from people that I haven't heard from before. And it's definitely making me a better person and making me uh, more excited and making reconfirming everything that I do in my life to, to fight for a better world for everybody. So I second that joy. It's pretty awesome. Well, uh, Brittany, thank you so much for reaching out. And I'm so glad that we we met. And I'm so glad that there are groups like Engineered for Sustainable World and Data for Progress and all of these other organizations that you're getting involved in. And I'm hoping that technical students can keep getting inspired to to also be activists and to also use their their technical skills for social good. Thank you so much for having me.